If you join me in Bible study this morning, open up please to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah in Hebrew means the Lord remembers. And if you remember Malachi chapter 4, the Lord remembers his oath. He remembers his promise to send Messiah. And that's what Zechariah is about. Messiah is coming. He's coming again. But we are on chapter 10, verse 4, which is all about Messiah is coming. Is there supposed to be a green light on the amplifier? Is there supposed to be a green light on the amplifier? Let me see. Did that turn the green light on? All right. Can you hear me in the back? All right. Should we start over? No, we're just pressing on. Zechariah chapter 4 follows Zechariah chapter 3. We all know that, but that's irrelevant because we're in chapter 10. Okay. Now that we all know where we are, you got to have a little humor sometimes. Okay. We are in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 4, which is all about Messiah. And Messiah is to come from what tribe? The tribe of Judah. So look back at verse 3. It ends with the house of Judah. And that's exactly what verse 4 grows out from. It says, from him, from Judah, comes the cornerstone. From him, the tent peg. What's the word for tent peg in Hebrew? Yoted. Uh-huh. Does that bring up images of Isaiah? It should. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler together. So, from the tribe of Judah comes Messiah. Let's look first at the cornerstone. Go to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was being sung at the moment Messiah died on Calvary's tree. He was crucified just out the north gate because the sin offering was always killed on the north side of the altar. But it's so close to the temple that they could have heard the Levitical choir singing all over the site of the crucifixion. And in Psalm 118, verse 22, here are some of the words that Messiah himself would be hearing just before he says, it is finished. Verse 22 says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What is the significance of that verse? What does it mean? Where was Messiah crucified? They call the place... Golgotha, the place of a skull. It looks like a skull today even because that's where they hewed the stones for the temple complex. So they took the stones from this very place and yet here's Messiah, the chief cornerstone, and him they reject. He should have been the capstone, the ultimate finishing of the temple. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God. It actually should say, Thus says my Lord, the Lord. Behold, I lay in Zion, Zion, Jerusalem, a stone for a foundation. A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. <coughs> Is that quoted anywhere in the New Testament? Where? Matthew 21. Let's go to Matthew 21. 
which makes my next, next question not needed, and that is, are we sure that's talking about Messiah? The answer is, of course we are. In Matthew 21, it refers to this, starting in verse 42. Yeshua said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. That's a reference back to what? To Psalm 118, right? Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Modern theologians say, aha, it was taken away from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. Is that what this means? No. Taken from the scribes and Pharisees and given to the apostles. And whoever falls on this stone, there's the reference back to 2816, which said, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. Whoever falls on his stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. What does that verse mean? It means if you fall on your knees before Messiah, you will find salvation. And if not, come judgment day, that stone's going to fall on you and crush you to powder. Let's look also at Romans 11.11. 11. Romans 11.11. 11. I say then, have they, that is the Jewish people, stumbled that they should fall? All of replacement theology says, yes, yes. But what does the Bible say? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What does this have to do with the stone? What has caused them to stumble? That chief cornerstone. The stone that they stumbled over is Yeshua. You're absolutely right. It's almost like they were blind and they just tripped over. <laughs> yeah, if you're blind and walking through a field of huge stones, what might you do? Yeah. Trip and fall. If anyone ever wonders why stoning became popular in Israel, it means you've not been there. As you walk through the field, I've never seen so many stones in all my life for fields that have been worked for thousands of years. Oh my goodness. But go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Verse 11. Verse 11 begins with the word this. This refers back to Yeshua, the Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified. <coughs> Peter says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know how much courage that took for Peter to say those words? This is Acts chapter 4. The first believers come in Acts chapter 2. So he's talking to an unbelieving world and saying, You called 
crucify him, crucify him. It's your fault. You stumbled over this stone of offense. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Verses 6 and 7. First Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture. What does Peter mean by the scripture? What you and I would call the Old Testament. He doesn't call it that. He calls it the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect. Precious, And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Do you suppose that word believes is a once in a lifetime event? Or is that a continuous ongoing action? And the next word is therefore. To you who believe he is precious. But to those who are disobedient. Look what Peter says are opposites. You who believe. And those who are disobedient. Meaning those who believe are what? Obedient. And those who are disobedient are disobedient because they don't want. Believe. That sounds just like Hebrews chapter 3, doesn't it? But it says to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to want, to the word. What does he mean by the word? The scriptures, the word of God, to which they also were appointed. Were they supposed to be following the word? Yes. Then why aren't they? What do they lack? They lack faith. How many times does the scripture let us know that disobedience is caused by a lack of faith? And that being full of faith causes upright obedience. Okay, let's go back to Zechariah because that was the cornerstone. Next comes the Yotade, the tent peg. That's from Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22. Verse 23. Isaiah 22, verse 23. I will fasten him. Who's the him that we're being referred to here? It's Messiah, Yeshua. The one who descends from the house of David. Fasten him as a peg in a secure place. That secure place is in the temple. What were the yotade used for in the temple? To hold up all the elements, all the tools and pieces and parts that were used in the temple. In other words, without the yotade, the tent peg, to hold it all together, it would all fall apart. So Messiah is the center of the temple. Did you know that? The temple's all about Messiah. 
and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Hmm. Back to Zechariah chapter 10. Verse 4. From him the battle bow. When was Messiah ever a warrior? Came down and killed 185,000 of the Sennacherib soldiers? Yeah. Is he coming back for the battle of Gog and Magog? And then the battle of Armageddon? He's called what in the scriptures? Adonai Zavaoth, the Lord of hosts, meaning the Lord who leads the armies of heaven in battle. He's also called El Gibor, mighty God, but that word mighty, Gibor, means a mighty soldier, a mighty warrior. How many of you think Messiah was just a wimp? If so, just watch him return. Verse 5, they, now not him anymore, but now it's they. Who are the they? They refers back to the house of Judah. The house of Judah. What happened to the ten northern tribes? They went into the Assyrian captivity, they're gone. So what's left of Israel is Judah, the house of Judah. And the house of Judah has been brought back to the land. And how many of you think they're wimpy soldiers? If you think that, you're not watching what's going on in Gaza. They are mighty warriors. So that's what verse 5 says. They shall be like mighty men. Like mighty warriors. Why? Why did verse 4 come between 3 and 5? Who is the source of the might? Yeshua is. That's right. So the Israeli defense forces have Messiah behind them. That's why their victories have been inconceivable. How many of you, had you been there on the battlefield in 1948, would have expected that this little band of Jewish soldiers is going to whoop the entire Islamic world? Nah, you'd have been there taking odds and it wouldn't have been in favor of Israel, huh? 1956, 1967, 1973, 2023. Just keep adding up the battles. Israel should have lost them all. On the Yom Kippur War, do you remember the reports that came out of that war? Syria was advancing so fast. They thought it was a trap, so they stopped. It wasn't a trap. The Jewish soldiers had all gone home to celebrate Yom Kippur. But they thought it was a trap, so they stopped, and that gave Israel a chance to call out the troops and go up and engage them. It's not that the Israeli soldiers are so much better than everybody else. It's because God is on their side. So the IDF wins the Psalm 83 war. Let's go back and look at Leviticus chapter 26. 
Leviticus chapter 26. If you believe the news reports, Iran had every intention of jumping into this Israel-Hamas war until they saw the ferocity of the Israeli Defense Forces and then they said, hey, Gaza, you're on your own. We're not getting in the middle of that. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 1 through 9. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 1 through 9. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves. What is that sacred pillar they're talking about? An Asherah pole. Nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will, here's number one, here's number one promise, I'll give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last until the time of vintage and the vintage shall last until the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land. How? Safely. I, number two, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. Is all of Israel believers today? No. But if you look back to 1992 and then look at today, you will see how belief in Messiah has just exploded and gone across the land. And the more the people turn to God, the more God will fulfill these promises the more that there will be no invader that can stand before the Israeli military. Not because they're the biggest, not because they're the best funded or best supplied, but because God is with them. Go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. I can think of one photo that I saw recently that helps explain why Israel is having such success in Gaza. You probably saw it. It's an Israeli soldier in Gaza that takes time out from the battle. He's reading from the Torah scroll using a big old knife as the little implement. Yeah. Deuteronomy 32 verse 28. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them 
and the Lord has surrendered them. For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Meaning what? They They will come to the point to admit that Israel's God is strong, which takes you back to that Muslim cry, Allah is greater. One of these days they're going to go, oh no, he's not. That day is coming. The prophecies tell us that many Muslim nations are going to turn to worship the Lord our God and accept Yeshua as Messiah. I can't wait till that happens. Back to Zechariah. Verse 4, from him comes the cornerstone, Messiah is the chief cornerstone. From him the tent pig, Messiah is the tent pig. From him the battle bow, the ability to conquer in war. From him every ruler together. The kings of Israel all descend from David and Judah except for the northern kingdom. Yeah, Saul was first. Yeah, they made a poor choice here. (laughs) He was from Benjamin. But the tribes of Judah have always been ruled by a descendant of David in Judah. And the reason I can say that is Saul didn't actually rule over all 12 tribes. Hmm. Verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. That's talking about the southern kingdom, but not the next verse or the next phrase. And I will save the house of Joseph. That's talking about the northern kingdom. So he will strengthen Judah because Judah's back in the land. He will save or rescue the house of Joseph. That is, he's going to bring back the ten lost tribes. You and I may call them the ten lost tribes, but what does God call them? He knows exactly where they are. He calls them Israel. He calls them Ephraim. He calls them the house of Joseph. He says, I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. Which word there is jumping off the page going, circle me, circle me. The word mercy. Because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside. For I am the Lord their God and I will hear them. Oh, what verse does that bring to mind? Proverbs 28, 9. So can you see, without even using the word, they repented, God's telling you here, they repented. Let's go and start with Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, to see why I say that. God says he will have mercy on them. Exodus chapter 20, verse 6 tells us to whom God shows mercy. Does God show mercy to the unrepentant idolater? No. Verse 6. But showing mercy to thousands of generations. To those who what? Who love me and keep my commandments. Why was the northern kingdom sent into captivity? Were they loving God and keeping his commandments? Or was it just the opposite? was just the opposite. So when God shows them mercy, it's because they have repented. They have turned back to him. Is this the only place in the scripture that it says God shows mercy to those who love me and keep my commandments? Let's start with Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
But da Daniel's right, it's all over the place. We'll only look at half a dozen or so. If God says something once, it's important. If he says it 30 or 40 times, 50 or 60 times, he's trying to get our attention. Deuteronomy 5, verse 10. But showing mercy to thousands, again, that's thousands of generations. He's going to tell us that in a few minutes. To those who love me and keep my commandments. So when you see John 14, 15, that says, if you love me, keep my commandments. People say, well, that's a new concept in the New Testament. Is it new? No. It is not. It's as old as the scriptures. In 1 John chapter 5, it says, what is the love of God? That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Oh, but I hear all the time, Wayne, it's so hard to keep God's commandments. Really? It is if you don't want to. It is if you don't want to. That's exactly right. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9. Told you he'd tell us in a minute that it was thousands of generations. Verse 9 says, Therefore, therefore what? Go back to verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Verse 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God. And that's not exactly what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says he is the God. What does adding the word the mean? There's only one. Uniqueness. Who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And as Daniel has told us, that word love and that word keep, they're both what? Participles. Ongoing action. How long is a generation? Some people say 40 years, some 70, some 80, some 120. Let's take the very smallest, 40. If you have a thousand generations of 40 years, how long is that? 40,000 years. We've only been in this world for 6,000. So does this say into eternity future? Especially if there's an S on thousands. Go to Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5. Why Nehemiah? Because Nehemiah is as the people are beginning to return from the Babylonian captivity. Coming back to the land saying, oh, we've learned our lesson. We're not doing that anymore. You realize that's when Israel started synagogues. They didn't exist before then. As they were coming back to the land, they said, we went into captivity because we sinned. And we sinned because fathers were not teaching their children. So we're going to establish synagogues so that everyone can come and learn the scriptures whether they were taught from the time they were young or whether they're just learning them now. That's why we started public schools. That's why we started public schools. Who started the first public school here in Georgia? It was a Jewish family. It was a Jewish family, but the last name of Davis, believe it or not. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5. The words of Nehemiah, 
Verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 actually takes place before the end of the Babylonian captivity. We're right at the end of the 70 years and Israel's about to go back to the land. But not before there's a prayer of repentance. Daniel chapter 9 verse 4. We'll start in verse 3 for context. After telling us, Daniel says, Hey, I just got done, read, got done reading Jeremiah, and it says after 70 years we're supposed to go home. It's been 70 years. We need to go home. Verse 3 says, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. And said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Instead of doing a thousand more, let's just skip right to Revelation 14, 12. Yes, ma'am. Sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth is that real rough burlap material that you would never wear voluntarily. People wore sackcloth and sat in literal ashes on the ground to show great mourning, great sorrow. And Daniel is mourning over the sorrows of the sins of Israel that got them sent into captivity in the first place. How can he pray a prayer of repentance on behalf of the nation? He is royalty. He is royalty. In Revelation 14, 12, I just want you to see that God's standards have not changed. Revelation 14, 12 puts it just slightly differently when he says, Here is the patience of the saints, the holy ones, the Haggaiots. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Faith and love are intertwined. They're inseparable. So this is showing mercy to those who love God and keep his commandments. If you love God, you will have faith in Messiah. Where does it tell us that you cannot love God if you don't love his son? That's 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And of course John puts it here because there were lots of Jewish people saying we love God but we hate that Yeshua fella. And John's saying uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, Whoever believes that Yeshua is the Messiah is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot, that's God, also loves him who is begotten of him, that's Messiah. Can't love God and hate the Messiah. Doesn't work that way. Oh, would you believe there's another whole page of notes. Let's go back to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 30. Well, it's a short page. 
We just read in Zechariah that God's going to bring the northern kingdom home. How and when does that happen? It's in Ezekiel 37, the vision of the valley of dry bones. If you want to know where we are on God's timeline, it's in Ezekiel 37. Let's see what we have in go to meeting out here. It says also in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. Yep, like I said, there's many other places we could go. It's a common theme. Okay, well, are we in Ezekiel chapter 37? Let's begin in verse 15. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying. What's that word saying? It's a quote. If these words come from the lips of God, can they be wrong? No. So they will come to pass. As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it. For Judah and the children of Israel, his companions, that's the southern kingdom. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, for all the house of Israel, his companions. Israel was united under two kings, David and Solomon. That's all. At the death of Solomon, that's when the nation broke into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Verse 17, then join them one to another for yourself into one stick. The stick represents the tree, the throne. So we had two kings, one in the north, one in the south. How many will we have when this is fulfilled? Just one. That's the significance of being one stick, one kingdom, one nation, one ruler. And when the children of your people speak to you saying, will you not show us what you mean by these? Wouldn't everybody know he picks up two sticks and makes one stick what that means? Well, no, they need a little explanation, and so do we. Verse 19, say to them, thus says the Lord God. It's actually my Lord, the Lord. Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and there will be one in my hand. Did you notice the significance of the order? Which is being merged into the other? Israel is being merged into Judah. Which is the kingdom that's been missing for 2,700 years? That was Israel. They're being brought back to Judah who's already in the land. Who's in the land today? Judah. Hmm. Verse 20, and the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone. I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Could you imagine these people that are from the ten lost tribes have no idea for the most part that they're even from Israel, right? But they're going to get brought back because God knows every one of them. Do you think God needs the DNA testing companies to find them for him? No, he does not. And I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. Ooh, that sounds a lot like John 10, the one flock, the one shepherd. Yeah. And one king shall be king over them all. Any idea who that king will be? 
Yeshua, our Messiah. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. Not only that, but what else? Verse 23, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols. No more idolatry. It's over. It's done. It's gone. Has this happened yet? No, not yet. This tell you, tells us that it's after the end of the tribulation period. Right? Because in the tribulation period, there will be idolatry. No, with their detestable things. Anybody ever see the TV show, The Nanny? And the episode where she took a ham sandwich into the synagogue to eat it. Ha, ha, ha. Like they thought that was funny. No more detestable things. Nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned past tense. The sinning is done. And I will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Does that sound like Zechariah 13? And each one shall say, he is my God. That's right. I'm tempted to just go to the end of the chapter. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them. I thought Messiah was going to be king. He descends from David. Why is Israel called Israel? Because they descend from David. They shall all have one shepherd. Oh, now that really is John chapter 10, huh? God wanted to make sure we didn't miss that one. And they also shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Not just know them, but they're actually going to do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I've given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. They offer the Jewish people a homeland in Africa. And what did the Jewish people say? That's not where God said. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children, for how long? Forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. That is the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Jeremiah 31, 33, where the laws of God are written on the heart and is the people's every desire to do them. That's when that covenant is complete. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. What's another word for everlasting? Forever. I will establish them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst. How long? Forevermore. That means that the Lord our God will dwell in the midst of Israel from that point forward even forevermore. That's the same as Ezekiel chapter 43. Verse 27, my tabernacle also shall be with them. That's Isaiah chapter 4. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. My sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. That means that many nations will come to be saved. Except God is God and Yeshua as Messiah. Oh, what a day that's going to be. Let's go back to Exodus 29. What could Exodus 29 have to add? Hmm.
verses 40 to 46. Exodus 29, verses 40 to 46. I still hear pages turning, so I'll give you a minute. Exodus chapter 29, starting in verse 40. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour, mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. Are there going to be sacrifices and offerings in the millennial kingdom? Yes, there will. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. It's not twilight, it's what time? 3 p.m. Bain Ha'aravim, between the evenings. You shall offer with the grain offering and the drink offering is in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. So the first lamb is offered at what time? What's that? That's the second one. The first one's at 9 a.m. What time was Messiah nailed to the tree? 9 a.m. And the second lamb is sacrificed at 3 p.m. Messiah died at 3 p.m. Hmm. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations, which means even into the millennial kingdom. At the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you. And there I'll meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. What does that mean, my glory? That's talking about the Shekinah glory, the dwelling presence of God. Where he dwelt in Israel in the pillar of fire and smoke. So I will consecrate the tabernacle and meeting in the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and the sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. But when it happens in the future, at the end of the tribulation period, it will never ever end. No more idolatry, no more captivity, more, no more revolting against God. Verse 46, And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Go to Leviticus 26. I especially wanted to add in that portion for the people who think, well, that's over and done with. Not over and done with. When God says forever, you know what he means? Forever. forever. Leviticus chapter 26, starting in verse 43. I said starting in verse 43. Yep. Leviticus 26, starting in verse 43. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. How many years was Judah in captivity in Babylon? Seventy, because that's the number of Sabbath years they failed to keep. It says they will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, meaning even despite all the sins they committed, when they're in the land of their enemies, I shall not cast them away. Nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. What does that mean? 
Yes, God sent them into captivity as a way to bring them to repentance. Does that mean God cast away Israel completely? The answer is no. Verse 45, but for their sake I'll remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Which tells us when Messiah returns and the temple goes back into operation, he's going to be right there in the midst teaching them the ways of God. Ah, how beautiful that's going to be. Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, verse 25. When you hear replacement theologians say, God cast off Israel, he's done with them, he's never going to deal with them anymore, they're calling God a liar. Don't call God a liar. He doesn't like that. Ezekiel 28, verse 25. Thus says the Lord God, it's my Lord, the Lord. The reason I keep saying that is the emphasis is on the Lord is my Lord. It's a personal relationship. When I have gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered. Does that say if? Or maybe? No, it says when. And am hallowed in them, in the sight of the Gentiles. What does hallowed mean? Set apart, honored. That means that the, the scattered captives have repented and turned their hearts back to God. And am hallowed in them, in the sight of the Gentiles. And they shall dwell in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. Has God forgotten that he gave the land to Jacob? He has not forgotten and they will dwell safely there. When does Israel dwell safely? Millennial kingdom. Millennial kingdom, when the Prince of Peace is their defense. Will build houses and plant vineyards. Yes, they will dwell securely. When I execute judgments on all those around who despise them. Who executes the judgments? The Lord does. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Is the, is the house of Israel the northern kingdom, or is it the Gentiles and Jews that have become... House of Israel refers to all those who have come to God by faith. Okay. Same as Paul uses the term the commonwealth of Israel in Ephesians 2. I have a half giggle when I hear theologians say, the Old Testament, that was for the house of Israel. That's not for me. Well, the new covenant is made with Israel. If you're not part of Israel, if you've not been grafted in, then what you're saying is that, uh, that covenant doesn't apply to you either. Hmm. You have your own uh, future. Yeah. Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel is a true prophet of God. He tells us that. Therefore, what portion of his prophecies will come true? All of it. Ezekiel 39, which is part of the prophecy about the battle of Gog and Magog that happens about three years into the tribulation period, if I understand the timeline correctly. 
Let's start in verse 21. <coughs> At the battle of Gog and Magog, it is not just Israel that gets saved. It's not just Israel who has the scales fall from their eyes. Look at verse 21. He says, I will set my glory among the nations. The word nations means the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world. All the nations shall see my judgment with which I have executed. Could that have happened 2,000 years ago? No. How many of you now and then turn on your computer and, and look at what's happening at the Western Wall in Jerusalem? Just to see what's going on. When God brings the battle of Gog and Magog to a conclusion through his superhuman intervention, the world's going to see it. CNN's going to be there. And my hand which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Notice verse 22 does not say, so Israel shall know. It says the house of Israel. Doesn't Ezekiel 38 and 39 tell us that many nations will get saved at that same time? They're all grafted into this house of Israel. And when it means from that day forward, it means no more turning away. No more rejecting God. No more turning to idols. Verse 23 says, The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they were unfaithful to me. What's the word iniquity? Lawlessness. Therefore I hid my face from them. That's Proverbs 28.9. When they turn their ear away from hearing the law, does God hear their prayers? No. He says, I turned my face away. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword according to their uncleanness. People tell me today, uncleanness is not important. Well, it is. And according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. That word transgressions means rebellion. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, which is again my Lord, the Lord. Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob, that is to bring them home. Have mercy on the whole house of Israel. That means what has changed? Israel has repented. And I will be jealous for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid. When I brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations. So God knew when Israel came back into the land in 1948, they become a nation again, that they were not going to be the godly nation. When do they get hallowed? When does God get hallowed in their eyes? At the battle of Gog and Magog. In the sight of many nations. He keeps saying that because the many nations are going to say, Oh my goodness, there's a God in heaven. And it's not Allah. It's not. Verse 28. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Who sent them into captivity among the nations. But also, don't miss that, but also brought them back to their land. The captivity was prophesied in Deuteronomy 28. 
But the regathering was also prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 30. If we know that God kept the judgment part, then we know that God will also keep the return part. And left none of them captive any longer. So the military concept of no man left behind was actually started by God, right? Not one will be left behind. And I will not hide my face from them anymore, which means they have turned their ear to hear the Torah. For I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. What spirit will have been poured out? The Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit get poured out on unbelievers or on believers? So it's talking about the national salvation of Israel. So the thing in Acts chapter 3 was it, it's only in first fruits of like that pouring out of the Holy Spirit? Correct. I would have started in Acts chapter 2 <coughs> and gone forward, but how many prophecies are multiple fulfillments? Yeah, many of them. So What's happened before yeah. will happen again. So we're talking end times here. But we're also Mr. Wayne. Throughout history. Yep. Yes, Miss Susie. So those verses in Ezekiel 39, that's essentially speaking of the millennial kingdom? Yes, ma'am. What follows the Tribulation period. The yeah, millennial, millennial kingdom. kingdom. Yep. And then you also have a question from Ken and Libby. Oh, let me go out and look at it. Let's see. Thank you. Could you explain the sacrifices and offerings in the millennial kingdom? We thought sacrifices ended when Jesus died for our sins. Okay, let's explain that. The people who think that the sacrifices ended when Messiah was crucified think that the sacrifices used to save people. Did sacrifices ever save people? The answer is no. The purpose of the sacrifices was to be a teaching point. A teaching that we sin. And because we sin, the wages of sin is death. And the innocent animal died in our place as a picture of Messiah's coming death, burial, and resurrection. And going forward from that, how do you explain to people today what the death of Messiah meant? Why was it necessary? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So in the millennial kingdom, Messiah is on the throne. Those who came alive through the tribulation period are still human beings. The rapture and resurrected saints are on immortal bodies. We don't have children anymore. I'm on tape, so let me not add a comment there. But those that came through alive, survived the seven-year tribulation period, come through into the millennial kingdom saved, they'll be having children. Are those children born saved? No. How do you explain to those children why Messiah had to die and why it's necessary to accept his death in our place? That's what the sacrifices are there for. It's a teaching point. And beyond that, did God say the sacrifices were to be done forever? He did. And if he says they're to be done forever, when will they end? Never. Never. And it's all there for a teaching. How many of you thought you were going to save yourselves? No. But how do we learn that? How do we learn that the innocent must die for the guilty to be forgiven and live? Yeah. Okay. Back to Zechariah. 
Chapter 10. We're up to verse 7. Oh, those weren't pages turning. That was a candy bar. Sorry. Okay. Verse 7. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man. What the English doesn't tell us there is that word mighty is gabor. G-I-B-B-O-R. The same word from Isaiah 9 that says Messiah will be El Gabor. So in the Messianic kingdom, when Messiah has returned and brought Israel back to the land, they will be like mighty warriors. That's especially going to be true in the tribulation period with the Psalm 83 war, the battle of Gog and Magog, and the battle of Armageddon. In fact, well, we know what Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and 7 means. But, those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. When you see that rejoicing there, which of the seven feasts and festivals does it bring to mind? Sukkot, Tabernacles, which teaches about the Messianic Kingdom. Messiah establishing his kingdom on earth. It says, yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. Why the emphasis on the children? They're our future. True. Is that joy and rejoicing just one generation or does it go from generation to generation with Messiah on the throne? There is no more war. There's no more bloodshed. There's more, even no more animals attacking people. And it shows too that the parents are actually teaching the children. That's right. By example too. That's really the best way to teach is by example. Verse 8. I will whistle for them and gather them. Wait. Yes, sir. When I was growing up, when you were growing up, my mama had a whistle for all three of us children. That was a different whistle. When we ah. were out going and playing, and if she wanted us to come home, she'd get out there and whistle. And what did that whistle mean? Get your butt to the house. It's time to come home, I would say, since we're recording this. I'm sorry. Okay. I apologize. But that's exactly what this is talking about here. I will whistle for them and gather them. They will respond to the summons. For I will redeem them. And they shall increase as they once increased. This is not the only place the scripture refers to God calling the children of Israel home as a whistle. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. How many of you, when he was telling that story, was thinking of the Pied Piper and the children following the Piper? Sound of music? You ever think of Sound of Music? I think of the Pied Piper because what is the Hebrew word for flute? It's chayil, which means the pierced one. They followed the pierced one. It's all about Messiah bringing the children of Israel home. Where are we? Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5. I wonder why. 
<laughs> I for, oh, I know. Verse 26. He will set up a banner to the nations from afar. You know who that banner is? That's Messiah. And will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they shall come with speed, swiftly. Didn't you when your mama blew the whistle for you? You got yourself home, didn't you, boy? Yeah. And this is the same picture. Messiah stands up and says, it's time to come home. He blows that whistle and they come running. That's what it means. Surely they will come speed with speed, swiftly. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 18. I think shepherds did have a whistling, but they, I mean, their own, I think that's been common forever, is you whistle for the animals to gather. Oh yeah, and they know the shepherds whistle, don't they? Verse 18, Isaiah 7 says, and it shall come to pass in that day, what day? Day of the Lord, that the Lord will whistle for the fly. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 18. You're welcome. Shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that's in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that's in the land of Assyria. They will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys, in the clefts of the rocks, in all thorns and in all pastures. Is it really talking about bees and flies? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Uh huh. <laughs> Not only in Zechariah did it talk about the whistle, but it also talked about the word redeem. Let's go look at that one more time. Zechariah 8. I will whistle for them and gather them, for I will redeem them. But this is not the normal word redeem. This word in Hebrew is pada. P-A-D-A. Pada. Let's go look at Deuteronomy 7.8. To see if we can get a better idea how this word differs from the normal word for redeemed. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8. Normally when you see the word redeemed, redemption means you have, for instance, borrowed money. And you have now paid it back. So pay what you owe is redemption. And someone else can pay it on your behalf, which is the way we normally think of redemption. We owe God our very lives, and Messiah redeemed them back through his death, burial, and resurrection. But this word redeemed is a little different. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. But because the Lord loves you, and because you would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What? Did God send a bag full of gold coins to Pharaoh to buy them back? No, he brought them out what? Himself with a mighty hand. So it's different from paying the debt. He literally set them free. He destroyed the house of Pharaoh. It says he redeemed them by the blood of the firstborn in other scriptures. Yes. So that was a price. 
Someone bump. You got to bring our parent. Let me hold her. No, never mind. Okay. Oh, we have two questions out there. Let's see. Children have pure faith. Sometimes. Yep. To Deuteronomy nine twenty six. Yes, the blood of the firstborn of Pharaoh was shed, but that wasn't actually a price, if you will, a price that was paid to Pharaoh. Deuteronomy 9.26 Therefore I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your inheritance whom you have redeemed through your greatness. That means through his might and power. Whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. God came in and destroyed Egypt and brought Israel out. He didn't come in and, and buy them for silver or gold. Chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, verse 18. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. What thing? When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. What's a sheaf? It's a big bundle of grain. That's valuable, right? It's an armload. That's, that's worth something. And if you forget one, God says, don't go back to get it. Why? It shall be for the stranger. That's the non-Jew. The fatherless and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again, meaning you get one chance. You beat the branches of an olive tree and the ripe olives fall. Those that don't fall, they're not ripe yet. You have to leave those. It shall be for the stranger, for the father of and a widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward, meaning those that were not ripe when you gleaned it, you leave them. When they get ripe, it says it shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this thing. And people are going, wait a minute. Those people didn't do anything for me. I, I got to leave the food for them. And God's saying, you didn't do anything for me. And I redeemed you anyway. Ah, okay. I see how this is going. That word pada, if you want to look it up, is the Hebrew word 6299. But let's go back to Zechariah and see how that affects our understanding of the verse. For I will whistle for them and gather them, for I will redeem them. Is God going to go out with sacks of gold to all the nations and say, please give me my children back? No, he's going to go take them. With his might and with his power. Uh, that's, what verse is that? That is Zechariah 10.8. 10. 10.8. Yep, that word pada is the word redeem there in verse 8. And they shall increase as they once increased. How did they increase before? Like the stars of the heavens, like the sand of the seashore. 
Will Israel as a nation and as a people continue in the millennial kingdom and into the future? Yes. How do you know? Give me a verse. Jeremiah 31, the nation of Israel will never cease. And Isaiah 66 too. Let's look at Isaiah 66. Since we've looked at Ezekiel Amite. What portion of the church today believes in replacement theology? According to the survey, it's 80 some percent. I didn't do the survey. That's just what's reported. Would you say that the 70 nations will never cease? Yes, I would say the 70 nations will never cease. And the others uh, probably will. Mm -hmm. The ones that have come out of those 70. Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, which means forever. So shall your descendants and your name remain. The your there is Israel. Sue says, Leviticus chapter 7, verses 28 to 34 says, The portion of the sacrifice given to Aaron's sons is a statute forever, which tells us the sacrifices will never end. She says sacrifices will continue. The only place you can sacrifice is at the temple. That's true. That's Deuteronomy 12. Since the temple is currently destroyed, sacrifices will begin again when the temple is rebuilt. Give me a scripture that will tell us that. You got many to pick from. Let's start with Daniel. Chapter 9 verse 27. She is absolutely right. In chapter 9, verse 27. It's a prophecy. What do you know about God's prophets? They're accurate. What percentage at a time? 100%. Always. Daniel 9, 27 says, Then he, referring to the false Messiah, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That is one seven-year period. That's the seven years of the tribulation. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. How many of you realize that to be able to bring an end to sacrifice and offering, there must be sacrifice and offering? Yes. So the temple will be rebuilt. And at the middle of the tribulation period, the false Messiah will stop the sacrifices. Has anybody heard anything about, oh, I don't know, maybe a, a new temple about to be built anywhere? Yes, it's all over the news. Um, there are people out there, I just want you to know, that claim to be messianic even, who teach that this he, in verse 27, is Yeshua. That Yeshua made a seven-year covenant and then broke it. How many of you realize that's a non-starter? What does the scripture say? Psalm 89 verse 34, my covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. And then Matthew 24 verse 35 says what? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. That was one. Give me another. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 43. 
In Ezekiel 43, Messiah returns to establish the Messianic kingdom. It's parallel to the passages we were just reading about. Ezekiel 43, 7. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. That's in the temple itself. And the place of the soles of my feet. Where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. Do you see that word forever? Now go over to uh, verse 18. Same chapter. Messiah just took his seat in the temple of God. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God. Again, it's my Lord, the Lord. These are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it's made. For sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for sprinkling blood on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites, who are the seed of Zadok, who approach me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull of the sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering. And they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you finish cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. Do you get the idea the sacrifices are ongoing? With Messiah on the throne teaching the Torah, the sacrifices resume. And who built this temple, the rebuilt temple? Yeshua did. That's Zechariah chapter 8. Okay. So these sacrifices are for corporate Israel. Is that correct? Not individual? That's true. Yes. And what happens at Passover? Then you bring the lamb. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Of course, go ahead, Pat. Okay, so at the end of the thousand years. So at the end of the thousand years. And then you have the white judgment. Then you have the great white throne judgment. Okay. Then you have the new heaven. Then you have the new heaven and the new earth. Well, there should not be any more sin left after that. Correct. But there is no more sin. Do sacrifices. The purpose of the sacrifice is to teach. Correct. But there is no more sin. Right. So there shouldn't need to be more teaching for redemption of sin if there is no more sin. Right. Are their children still being born? Yes. How do they understand what Messiah did? Yes, but then if they're sinning... They're not they're sinning. They're not sinning. But they still need to understand who Yeshua is, the King of kings and Lord of lords who's ruling and reigning in their midst. Why should they appreciate him? What did he do for mankind? Well, I guess I kind of think that... I, is there really still children being born? What did it say in Isaiah 66? That Israel and its name will remain forever. Its people will remain forever. Yeah, there will be live children. Just like, what if Adam and Eve had not sinned? Would they still have had children? Sure. Yeah. So, I'm not going to worry too much about what happens in eternity future until we get there. Because the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot in the few verses about it. All I know is I want to be there. Yeah. Yeah.
one day at a time. That would make a good TV show. <laughs> Go back to Zechariah chapter 10, verse 9. Honestly, it was so long ago, I don't remember this show, but I, I know I saw it once upon a time. <laughs> Verse 9, I will sow them among the peoples. The word sow there means to scatter. And they shall remember me in far countries. The scattering took place a long time ago. But eventually they will come to their senses and remember the Lord in those far countries. It says they shall live together with their children and they shall return. It doesn't matter that the northern kingdom was scattered 2,700 years ago. God has not forgotten them and they will return. And Hosea chapter 6 tells us when they return. And that's as we come to the day of the Lord. So what was the purpose of the captivity? Was it because God's a mean old God wanted to punish them? Or was it to call them to repentance? Why does it take some people so long to decide to repent? It's a long time. I still remember from 20 years ago or more a full page ad in the New York Times. It didn't have a lot of words on it, but mostly what it said was, why do Jews today not accept Jesus as Messiah? And the answer was because the rabbis in Jesus' day rejected him, therefore we don't need to consider the issue. Their point was, since they said it way back then, that he's not the Messiah, ah, then we just accept it. Isn't that sort of what they do today with parents? Yeah, the parents are the fault we do everything wrong. <laughs> parents are the fault we do everything wrong? Okay. I would point more to doctrinal issues within the church. Just this past week, I've heard theologians say, that there cannot be a rapture. Because the rapture has not been taught since day one of the Catholic Church. So if they didn't teach it, then I can't believe it. I can't study it. I can't see if it's true. It can't be true. Or it would have been taught from the time that the Catholic Church was first established. I'll tell you what, I'm not going to rely on somebody 2,000 years ago to decide my fate, my salvation. I'm going to read the Bible for myself. How about the guy you paid him so you could go to heaven? How about the guy you paid him so you could go to heaven? Yeah, yeah. Like indulgences. Indulgences you paid the priest ahead of time before you committed the sin so that God wouldn't hold it against you. Yeah. So, back to verse 9. I will sow them or scatter them amongst the peoples and they shall remember me in the far countries. They shall live. They shall live because they repent. Together with their children they shall return. What does the word return mean? Not just to come back physically, but to repent. And verse 9's promise is that the people would survive long enough to come to repentance. 
What does 2 Peter 3 say? God is long-suffering, not willing or not wanting that any should perish. Now verse 10 warms my heart as much as some of the rest of its pain. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. Egypt is south, Assyria is north. I bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. Gilead is in what's today called Jordan. Lebanon, still called Lebanon. But it means that Jordan and Lebanon will be part of Israel. That the people will worship the Lord together. That was in the original territory. Yes. Absolutely right. So there is going to be a change in the heart of Muslim people. As people pointed out, it's happening today. Muslims are having visions of the Lord and getting saved all over. It keeps getting reported. What's that? Of Abraham. Yep. That's right. Yep, they'll get their part too. All right. Back to Zechariah. What's it mean until no more room is found for them? It means that the children of Israel, when they're brought back, overflow the land. There's too many. That means the borders are going to get pushed out even farther, right? What's it say in Isaiah? Expand the borders. Push out the ropes and the, and the pigs. Isn't that cool? How many of you in here are descended from the ten northern tribes? Don't know. Verse 11. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. What is the sea picture in prophecy? The Gentile nations. All the depths of the river shall dry up. That's talking about the Nile River, which would keep people from flowing naturally back and forth between Israel and Egypt. Remember, Israel, Egypt, and Assyria are going to be like one nation under God. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So they'll be brought in and be part of Israel. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. I know we read it before, but now it becomes especially relevant. And it shall come to pass in that day. So this tells us when it happens. That the Lord will whistle for the fly that's in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt. And for the bee that's in the land of Assyria. They will come and all of them will rest. In the desolate valleys, in the clefts of the rocks, and in all thorns, and in all pastures. It's all going to become like one land. And the Lord will regather even from Egypt and Assyria. That second regathering is described in more detail in Isaiah 11, starting in verse 10. Verses 6 through 9 describe the peace and security in the kingdom, the Messianic kingdom. 
Verse 10, it says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Who is that root? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. Who shall stand as a banner to the people. That word banner is the rallying point. That when he whistles, that's where they come to. For the Gentiles shall seek him. Are those the unsaved amongst the Gentiles? No, these are the Gentiles getting saved. And his resting place shall be glorious. Does that make you think of Hebrews 4.9? The Sabbatismos. There is yet a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's that resting place. Verse 7, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. The first time was after the Babylonian captivity when the children of Israel were brought home. To recover the remnant of his people who are left. Why does he use the word remnant? According to Zechariah 13, what portion of Israel will survive? A remnant, just a third. From Assyria and Egypt, that's north and south. From Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar. From Hamat and the islands of the sea. And again, verses 10 and 11 are going to focus on verse 12. He will set up a banner for the nations. That's the Gentiles. And will assemble the outcasts of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. And gather together the dispersed of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, from the four corners of the earth. So verse 12 says he's going to bring back all of the faithful, all of the believers, whether from the Gentile nations, from the northern kingdom of Israel, or from the southern kingdom of Judah. Does God care who your parents are? No, he's looking at your heart. Do you love him or don't you? How many of you in here say, I love him. I believe in him. I want to be with him. All right. Chapter 11, verse 16. So Isaiah eleven sixteen. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. That highway has a name. That highway is called the Via Maris. V-I-A-M-A-R-I-S. In Isaiah 9, they translate it as the way of the sea. They shouldn't have translated it. That's the name of the road. That road connects Asia to Africa, going right straight through the heart of Israel. What mountain does it go right in front of, by the way? It's what separates the Mount Megiddo from the Jezreel Valley is the Via Maris. So it's going to be a way for all the believers to pass back and forth from Assyria to Egypt through Israel as they all come up to worship the Lord together. How do we know they're all going to come up to worship the Lord every year? Zechariah 14, 16. They're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Go to Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19, verse 18. Isaiah 8, 19, verse 18. In that day, what day? Day of the Lord. Five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. Oh, is that Koine Greek? Yes. 
Is it Aramaic? No, it's Hebrew. Give me the scripture that says we're all going to speak Hebrew in the kingdom. Zephaniah 3, 8 and 9. Yeah. So in that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. That pillar at the border identifies the God that reigns in that country. You've all seen the movie The Ten Commandments. As they're going out of Egypt, they go between those two pillars of the pagan gods. Those were the gods that were the chief gods of Egypt. That's not going to be true anymore. It's going to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That will be the God of Egypt. In the same chapter, Isaiah chapter 19, let's start in verse 23. Did we go there already? We did, and yet it's going to say the same thing. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, the Egyptian into Assyria. What's that highway? The Via Maris. It runs right between the battle, or the hill of Megiddo and the Jezreel Valley. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. But who are they serving? Verse 24, In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. Which means the people of Egypt and the people of Assyria will worship the Lord our God with the same fervor, with the same heart, as the children of Israel. Isn't Assyria no, Assyria today is Iraq, all the way up into southern Turkey. Okay. What well, used to be called Babylon. Is Assyria part of that? And Assyria, Assyria today is part of that, yeah. There will have to be some serious changes of hearts. There will have to be some serious changes of hearts. That's what happens at the Battle of God and Magog. When everybody sees God intervened. And by the way, his name wasn't Tala. He pretty well wipes out everybody whose heart's not right. That's exactly right. Those whose hearts are not right will perish when Messiah comes. All right. Anybody excited yet? If not, I need to preach harder. Okay. Back to Zechariah. Chapter 10, we have one more verse. So I will strengthen them in the Lord. What does that mean, I'll strengthen them in the Lord? Strengthen their faith spiritually and they shall walk up and down in his name uh-uh that doesn't read right if i say walk up and down what do you think that they're running stairs in gym class right no this is a heat pa'el verb h-i-t-p-a apostrophe e-l heat pa'el this is the reflexive this is, they choose to walk with God. Where before they chose to walk contrary to God, they will walk in the ways of God because they choose to, says the Lord. Let's go back and look at some other places in the past where we've seen the heat pa'el verb form of walk 
so we understand. Go back to Genesis chapter 5. It indicates a conscious choice that we will walk in the ways of the Lord. Not an accident. Genesis chapter 5, verse 2. Genesis chapter 5, verse 2. He created the male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. What makes me think that wasn't verse 2? That's not a verse 2. It's uh, Enoch. Let's find Enoch. 24? Yeah, there we go. 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I just didn't put the four after the two. That's what happened. Okay. But we know that what that means is the rest of the world is walking contrary to God. And Enoch says, no, I'm not going to be like the rest of the world. I'm going to follow the Lord my God and walk in his ways. Follow his commandments. Worship him. And Enoch is the first picture in the Bible of the rapture, right? God caught up the man that he considered righteous. And then in chapter 6, verse 9, this is the next man that God says, he chose to walk with me. That's verse 9, Genesis 6, 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. That word perfect is tamim. It means without spot or blemish. Noah walked with God. There's that heat pa'el verb that means Noah chose to walk with God. It was his heart's desire. How does God describe Noah later as a preacher of righteousness? So he tried to persuade the rest of the world. And how did they treat him? Like a crazy old man? Go to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. I want to read verses 3 through 12, but the key verse is 12. Ready? Verse 3 begins with that little word, if. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably, and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. 
I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. That word walk is a heat pa'al verb. God will choose to walk with us if we choose to walk with him. And I really thought that was cool. I don't know. Let me look. Okay. Then I'll look later. Okay. Can, can we assume that that means the Holy Spirit, not Yeshua? Because Yeshua is limited in being in one place at one time because he's chosen to be a man. So would that not leave the Holy Spirit being the one that can walk with each of us? I don't know if I would say that or not, because I haven't thought a lot about it, but it doesn't say I will walk within each of you. It says I will walk among you. And Messiah is going to return, and he is going to physically be in our midst. I thought, I mean, you wouldn't get a turn for a long time. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God yeah. daily. Right. And so that there's a personal presence of Yeshua right. with them, where Yeshua is limited in he can only be in one place at one time yeah yeah so I'm not saying no just hadn't really thought about that but you make a good point and you know what we made it to the next chapter so let's go back to Zechariah hey it's, there's not that many chapters in Zechariah right verse 11 open your doors O Lebanon that fire may devour your cedars. Uh-oh. That's not good. What happens if you set fire amongst trees? They burn. Verses 1 to 3 are metaphors for the mighty nations that have oppressed Israel down through the ages. They're about to get their comeuppance in the tribulation period. So open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Cedar's a picture of pride. How does Israel get oppressed by Lebanon today? Who's up there shooting those missiles? Hezbollah. What does Hezbollah mean? It means the army of Allah. So while some theologians say Lebanon is Israel's friend... That part I look at all them missiles coming and going, well, I'm not as sure as you are. Okay. Yeah. Verse 2. Wail, O Cypress, for the cedar has fallen because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O Oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. Notice the different kinds of trees in verse 2. The cedar, the cypress, the oaks. They just stand for the mighty nations that have oppressed Israel. Verse 3, there's a sound of wailing shepherds. That is the shepherds that lead these mighty nations for their glory is in ruins. What happens to the nations that oppress Israel in the tribulation period? They get God's judgment poured out upon them, huh? 
Verse 3 goes on to say, Their glory is in ruins. There's the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of the Jordan is in ruins. Pride of the Jordan refers to the fact that these oppressive powers have attacked and destroyed Israel through the ages and continue to try and push them from where? What's that phrase? From the river to the sea? So is that word pride like a pride of lions? No. The pride of, it's as you in know, it's, the glory. The pride, right. It just almost sounds like a play on words. Yeah, but I don't think it is. Oh. Especially remembering that it wasn't written in English. <laughs> yeah. But, it's talking about the glory of the Jordan, which is Israel, has been oppressed by the lions. And of course, we know from Hosea, they use lions to talk about Assyria, Babylon, Rome, etc. The nations that have oppressed Israel. And verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter. Whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. And their shepherds do not pity them. Oh my. The shepherds of Israel, the prophets, priests, and kings set them up for slaughter by leading them away from God. And when they led them away from God, were they just racked with guilt over leading the people into sin? Nah. They just say, Blessed be the Lord from rich. And don't pity the flock. And because the flock had no good shepherds to lead them right, they ended up going into captivity and falling into persecution and judgment by all these nations. And verse 6 says, For I, I as the Lord, will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. But indeed, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand, into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will, do not, will not deliver them from their land. Verse 6 is the Lord saying, I will not stop these invasions. I will not stop these captivities. Because of the sin of the people, they refuse to repent. Their shepherds have led them so far astray that they don't even feel guilt or shame over their sin. And of course, Deuteronomy 28 said, if they do that, then God will not keep them from going into captivity. Why would God come back to this after he's been talking about the regathering to the land? These verses, do they help explain why it's taken so long for that regathering to take place? The hearts of the people have been so hard that they've refused to repent and come back to God. Oh, that's a good verse. Verse 7. So I fed the flock for slaughter, which means God continued to bless them and bless them and bless them, even though they kept going farther and farther away. They just getting just were getting more ripe for slaughter. I took for myself two stamps. What are stamps? Rod, sticks. Mm-hmm. One I call beauty. That one is no, um, N-O-A-M, means pleasantness. 
like the name Naomi in the book of Ruth. The other I call Bonds. Hmm. I am a player. Yeah, that word is Chobalim, and it means destroyers. So when Israel is righteous, they're called beauty, Noam. When they're being rebellious and turn away from God and refuse to repent and come back, then he says, you're numbered for the slaughter. He said, and I fed the flock. God wants them to repent and walk in righteousness, but they get to choose. I have so many people that write and say, Wayne, why didn't God just force them to behave? Take away their right to choose. All I can say is that's not God's way, is it? God said, I set before you today life and good, death and evil. Choose life. But God will not take away our ability to choose whether to love him and follow him or not. And purposes would not be served if he did that. His purposes would not be served if he did that. How many of you guys want a wife that you forced into marriage? And you have to have chain to, well, you know. Verse 8. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. What are the shepherds of Israel? The prophets, priests, and kings. So it means the nation gets destroyed. It's leadership taken away. Because they were not feeding the flock. They were feeding off of the flock, as Ezekiel chapter 34 told us. But because of time, with 30 seconds left, let's go to the book of Micah. 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 Come on, Micah. Chapter 3. Verse 11. You would think with three different kinds of shepherds, prophet, prophets, priests, and kings, that at least one of them would be leading the people right at all times. We'll look at Micah chapter 3, verse 11. Her heads, there's the kings, judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. And her prophets divine for money. So in each case, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, was their focus on taking care of the people or enriching their pockets? says, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. So as the few prophets that are truly of God are calling the people for repentance, the prophets, priests, and kings are going, hey, we're just fine. Keep putting gold in my pocket and the Lord will just be fine with your sin. Good thing we don't hear any of that today. But our time has expired. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Zechariah chapter 11. Are we in 11? Yes. Good. Verse 9. <laughs>